1: Hello, hello, hello. Hello, everyone. I'm sure you're all absolutely knackered and exhausted from all that flag waving. Um, I'm sure you've all overdone it, as I have for the Jubilee. I was actually out celebrating with a lot of queens. Uh, I was at a gay festival. I got in at six this morning, so let's just... I'm a bit fragile, but I think we're going to persevere. Obviously, it is the Platinum Jubilee of the Queen uh the Queen Queen Elizabeth II, if you didn't know, is our head of state. Um and I think some people might think, you grumpy little lot. Everyone's having a good time, having a little party, having the little street parties, just, you know, getting into a big national festival. And here you come, stamping on their sandcastles with your miserable Republican, you know, anti party, anti britain lefties. Yeah, I get all that. Um but if not now, when? When do we ever? When is when is there ever a right time to talk about whether we should have an elected head of state in this country? Uh, we talked about this on the Jeremy Vine show the other week. Should Republicans um, be quiet for a change during the jubilee? And I was like, "What? Oh yeah, you can't 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 even open a newspaper these days without having Republicans going about elected head of state." It's not really a discussion this country has. We don't talk about an elected head of state. Partly, of course, because all, all, almost all our media supports. Uh, the monarchy, not just newspapers. The BBC doesn't even bother to pretend it's being impartial when it's covering issues to do with the Royal family. It's not even a pretense, is there? Um, but also maybe some self-criticism. People like myself don't talk about this very much either. Why? I suppose the issue is we kind of think, well, there's so many bread and butter issues, housing crisis, poverty, cost of living crisis, the climate, um, existential crisis facing humanity. We could go on. um, that is about picking battles, because if I looked at the polling, the vast majority support increasing taxes on the rich or public ownership. The monarchy, though we'll talk about the polling, the monarchy support for the monarchy in some form is still a majority. Those of us who support elected head of state remain in a minority, though that does seem to be changing, which we will talk about. Now, we got uh, two brilliant guests today. Later on, we're going to be talking about uh, the Amber Heard Johnny Depp libel trial. And I think some very disturbing implications of it. And particularly what it means, whatever you think about the verdict, um, not least the coverage of the trial and the way it's been discussed, what that means with women who are survivors of male violence. The fact that, you know, Me Too was about, you know, trying to address an imbalance in which women systematically face harassment abuse and violence at the hands of men but are rarely believed and the vast majority of men get away with it um and now is this part of a broader backlash against that me too movement if you like and what does that mean so we'll talk about it we've got a brilliant Really brilliant guest who we've had on before, Uh, um, Lucia Osborne Crowley, who's done an incredible job just going through, covering the trial and everything that's happened in it. So we're very fortunate to speak to her and what this all means. Now, uh, the Jubilee. We've all had our favourite moments. I think for me, for those who are listening to the podcast, uh, what you're about to hear is the reception that Boris Johnson and Carrie Johnson, the Prime Minister's partner, received when they arrive.
2: Um, but the Queen welcomes them as someone who's, they're part of her family. Uh, the Prime Minister just arriving with his
1: wife. Ooh, it's quite booing in the crowd, though. Oh. Well, and you can hear it. There is really quite a lot of booing, actually. Wow. A substantial amount. Uh, didn't see that coming. That's quite a moment. It's funny. It's just that's I a mean, lot. Come on. In these dark times, um, we need we need all the amusement we can get. And that is amusing. Um, I think it's notable that I think what's worrying for the prime minister there is I don't think there's that many cards carrying radical lefties in the Jubilee crowds. Like If you're if you're a really committed lefty it's not normally the sort of event you turn up. Those are monarchists. Those are people who really believe in the royal family. They're the sorts of people who, frankly, should be the rank and file of the Conservative Party. They're booing a Conservative Prime Minister. It doesn't look good for him, does it? I mean, I'm going to put my defend case on hat on, not something I normally do. Uh, but uh, Dan Hodges from Mail on Sunday said, to be fair, also worth noting that Keir, arriving to apathetic silence, isn't exactly a vote of confidence. Yeah, but it's the crowd, isn't it? It's, it's a monarchist crowd. I mean, those are kind of... I would imagine a large proportion of them, to say the least, have been consistent Conservative voters for large parts of their life. You don't really expect any Labour leader to get a big um, kind of rapturous um, reception, uh, but Boris Johnson got, I think, the reception he deserved. Now, something else before I bring in our brilliant guest to talk about this. Um, the, 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 the Mail on Sunday, here we go, this is them... Uh, it's a spot for those listening on the podcast, Marmalade, Your Majesty. It's Paddington Bear, of course, with the Queen. It's this clip that's been done. It's kind of seen as, do you remember, during the 22 Olympic ceremony when James Bond, the um, scene with James Bond and the Queen with the helicopter and all the rest of it. And, and everyone's like, oh, this is so cute. It's so sweet. And again, people are like, are you going to jump in the sandcastle again? you miserable lefty. But Paddington Bear would have been treated as an illegal immigrant uh, and would be deported to Rwanda under legislation I know it's a constitutional role, but signed into law by the Queen. Um, So it's nice to have this little cutesy moment, but I think it's worth underlining that the actual Paddington pair would be deported to Rwanda under the government's current legislation. Now, let's bring in, as our first guest, Graham Smith, who is the CEO of Republic, which is the... I think you can guess what that does. It campaigns for an elected head of state, a republic if you like. Graham, how are you doing? Hi, Owen, how are you doing? Fine. Um, Right, Graham, so a lot of people go, look, choose your timing, guys. Everyone's having a good time. Why can't we just enjoy whatever we think about the monarchy, the parties, the celebrations? We've had a tough few years. The people coming together is great. It's wonderful. Why talk about a republic now?
2: Well, why not now? And absolutely now. This is not a national celebration uh, you know, vast majority of people are not celebrating it. Most people are just enjoying their weekend, whether going away or just staying at home for four days. Uh, the polling is quite consistent on this. You know, we did a poll that showed 11% were very interested. We, uh, 54% not interested. Uh, there's another poll saying that, um, 14% had planned to do anything this, this, uh, weekend a poll that we did, which I think you alluded to before about the, um, Uh, support for the monarchy, showing that support had dropped sharply from 75% about five years ago to 60% now, also showed a jump up to 27% for people wanting to abolish the monarchy, which means there are almost twice as many people wanting to abolish it as planned to celebrate it. Now, obviously, it's still a majority for keeping it, but, you know, the idea that this is a national celebration just isn't true. And there have been quite a few photos going around on Twitter showing royal uh, or jubilee events where no one's turned up or hardly anybody has turned up so you know we're getting a very fake false picture from the media about what's going on and also no one's stopping them either they're still enjoying it you know so the idea that we're sort of interrupting their party and stopping them from doing that uh, is not true at all but this is a promotion of monarchy and it's uh, it's a political question so of course it has to be um it has to be challenged and um, going back so you go back 20 years to the to the 20 uh, 2002 uh, jubilee and then go back further to other big royal events republicans tended to duck and cover and sort of make you know silly remarks about oh well yeah you know, I'm going to go and spend a weekend in france or Ireland or whatever um republic over the last uh, 10 12 years has said well we're not going to do that we're going to step up and and you know challenge what's being said and use the opportunity to create debate so absolutely the right time doesn't spoil anyone's fun uh, and people can hear the alternative arguments.
1: Well, I had a great weekend myself, to be honest with you, but wasn't, wasn't, I'm was celebrating, as I said, with Queens yep. rather than the Queen. Um, let's look at the deep dive of the polling then. Let's have a little look. So I flashed this we flashed this up just while you were speaking there. Yep. More than one in four want the monarchy abolished, we support just 60%. More than one in four, 27% of Brits now support abolishing the monarchy, support for retaining the monarchy stands at just 60%, well below the 70-75% previously reported from across the polling industry over the last 10 years. And it's notable, actually, amongst younger people, that support for the monarchy is is the lowest, isn't it?
2: Yes, absolutely. And, And there's been other polling since the beginning of last year, which shows that even one of them was under 35, so not under 25, but under 35. So majority now, or more people uh, wanting abolition than wanting to keep it and the same is true in Scotland so the support for keeping the monarchy in Scotland is now down to around 45 percent so you know there is um quite a lot of shifting in polling and the big factor as people keep on saying oh you know the queen's so popular well yes she is uh well she's I don't know where about popular is not right my word she's you know widely admired people like her and, and don't have a bad thing to say about her but that's not the truth of Charles and you know, the queen's not going to be around for very much longer. Charles oh, is man, not Are you into the tower
1: of London with that kind of talk?
2: Charles is not just casually like that. Well, you know, it's going to happen, but I mean the Ch- Charles is definitely not the person to turn that around, you know. If the queen can't keep those polling numbers up, there's no way that Charles is going to. So I suspect that when Charles is on the throne that we're going to see another drop. Um and quite possibly if it's already down to 60, quite possibly down below 50 uh, nationwide.
1: I think it's also true, isn't it, that a lot of it's quite soft support. So you've got, according to the poll, we're in about a 25% who actively support an elected head of state and republic. So there's a quarter, and as we've noted, amongst younger generations, actually, that's much higher. Um, But I suppose you've got lots of other people. You've got another, I would say, you've got like a quarter of the population are probably like, we love the monarchy. The monarchy is really great. Everything about the monarchy is great. But a lot of other people are in the kind of, well... Mm. Yeah, You know, kind of often you'll get things like, well, do we want President Blair? Let's go through some of those arguments. President Blair. You might like Blair, so just somewhat a majority of people. Well, um, I can tell you have... that I've
2: been doing this a long time and I have met one person um, who worked for the Labour Party who who, wants, who liked the idea of President Blair, just one. Uh, everybody else says, well, we don't want President Blair, so how the hell is he going to win an election with no one want him? So, but it's a, it's a daft comment, simply because, you know, the the, sort of the logic of it is that we can't possibly get someone better than Prince Charles. Out of 65 billion people now i think that we probably can and if you look at ireland uh where they have elected heads of state who are doing a similar job you know very limited role um they have brilliant heads of state michael michael d higgins has polling ratings as high if not higher than the queen iceland also has brilliant heads of state uh they were the first country to elect a woman as uh, president as head of state in 1980 victus finn and she stayed in office for 16 years um there's uh, brilliant heads of states in places like finland and germany and whatever so yeah it just doesn't stack up as an argument it's a daft argument if you and it's a a way of trivializing it and dismissing it by just saying president no someone controversial um it's it's also slightly insulting to the british people because ultimately it's also saying well we can't trust the british people to to do the job uh, it's like well you know on the one hand, you can trust them. And on the other hand, it's nothing to do with whether or not you trust them. They've got a right to choose the head of state, whoever it is. And if they get it wrong, they can change their mind later. Uh,
1: I mean, isn't do you think one of the problems, I think, is because there's trust in politicians in this country has really collapsed. Um, I mean, there was polling recently, if I could just bring it up quickly. There was polling which just shows, because I know people think it's kind of culturally ingrained that people in this country just, you know, to ever never liked politicians but so a recent study found 63 percent thought politicians were out for themselves compared to 48 in 2014 and 35 percent in 1944. Yeah. i mean one of the problems we we face as republicans don't we is there's such cynicism about politicians because of numerous scandals and the way politicians generally have behaved that yep. it's easy for monarchists to go oh oh, that's, that's the one thing we really need in this country, more politicians. I mean, obviously all a politician is is someone who's elected yeah. by the people. To no. rep- There's nothing innate about what a politician is. It's just... I mean, it's not It's elected.
2: not even someone elected. I mean, I would say that Charles is a politician. It's just being born into the job. And the uh, two things to say about that. If you want a better politics, you need a better constitution. And getting rid of the monarchy is about having a better constitution. It's about also writing it down, limiting the power of government and, and uh, parliament, and having a, a head of state who can be a kind of referee in the system and and step in. I mean for example you might have a rule that says if a prime minister has um has broken the law that they should resign and if they don't then perhaps the head of state could uh, have a word with them and say well maybe you should. The queen doesn't do anything other than what she's told to do by the prime minister. So the the failure of our politicians is, is as much a failure of the uh, the system so change the system and you should be able to get better politicians i mean there are people we've elected but we've done it under a pretty awful system both in terms of the, the or specifically in, ter- uh, in terms of the power that they have once they're in office i mean the crown centralizes so much power in the hands of downing street um and this is why I mean, to- it was a tory lord lord helsham 40 odd years ago that uh coined the phrase elective dictatorship because the crown focuses so much power in the hands of uh down the street the other thing is if you're saying that oh you know they're in it for themselves well what what do you think the royals are in it for you know if the they say that uh you know if corruption the definition of corruption is the abuse of public office for private gain you know that is also the definition of royalty i mean it is a nepotistic institution in which they do everything they can to take all of our money <laughs> or lots of our money and spend it on themselves you know and if we look at i mean you remember the mp's expenses crisis from 2009 Mm -hmm. when that story broke when people were getting upset about an mp spending public money on a a packet of uh, biscuits um prince charles spends way more than that we we essentially give him an income of 20 million pounds a year out off the duchy of cornwall Mm -hmm. which is like you know six times the total combined income of all the elected heads of state of europe um for what you know so it's it's a bit of a it, again, it's just, the argument sounds good superficially, but it just it doesn't stack up. Tourism, people always go about tourism. I always
1: think this shows a lot. I know you're laughing because you hear this all the time, but uh, I mean, I, I I mean, on one level, I just think it's such an astonishing lack of um, I would say patriotism, a lack of uh, a, la- a lack of kind of you know confidence in 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 your own country to think the only reason people come to visit here is because of an an unelected head of state. And also, in fact, uh, I don't know if this is still the case, because I think you did this study, but a while ago, something like the top 20 tourism attractions in in Britain, and only one royal uh, palace or royal property made it into the top 20, and that was Windsor Castle. It's 17, whilst Legoland in Windsor was at number seven. So actually, Legoland (laughs) is more of a tourism attractor than the monarchy.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been retweeting uh, a graphic today about um, which shows a list. I think is a hundred top attractions, and none of them are, are particularly uh, popular compared to a whole host of places. I mean, Chester Zoo is more popular than Buckingham Palace, um, and I think Edinburgh Zoo as well. Certainly, um, places around right away, right, right away around the country. Um, the thing about what you just said about being unpatriotic and not having faith in the country is really important because it's not just about the tourism thing but it's also about the whole notion that, you know, people say, oh, we'll be so boring without, you know, then we can't possibly choose our own head of state. Who are we going to have? And we won't get tourists. And they are investing so much in the royal family as somehow making this country everything, mm-hmm. when this country is made by millions of excellent people who do extraordinary work at creating the culture and the business and the, the attractions and all the rest of it. And the idea that this hugely successful economy and this uh you know largely prosperous country is reliant on you know one family living in a, a dozen big houses is clearly nonsense on the tourism though there isn't a single shred of evidence that if we get rid of the monarchy uh we lose any tourism not not any at all and um, well, no one you know, France, the, uh, Graham. France has no tourists sorry? France has no well, tourists is it yeah But also, I mean, you know, the the best figure or the biggest figure that's ever been put out was 11 years ago for the wedding. Um, Visit Britain did a couple of press releases and they said, oh, this is going to be great for tourism. Um, And we did a a freedom of information request on their press release and their own research department had emailed their press office saying, you can't say that is not true. You know, we don't have any data to support that. And then they put out a figure saying that the monarchy brings in 500 million pounds a year in tourism revenue, and we looked at what they'd done, and they'd added up all of the ticket revenue for all of the attractions around the country that even had the slightest um, connection, historical or present, with the royal family, including places like St Paul's Cathedral, for example, which is an enormous tourist attraction in its own right. And so we we debunked that, and they stopped using it. But even the 500 million, which is the highest figure they've ever given, is a, a, you know less than half a percent of our entire tourism industry revenue. So you know it's just complete nonsense.
1: Tad Canwell says, thanks to Jubilee, Paul Heaton of the House Miles did a really good concert in Dublin yesterday to avoid the whole thing. So thanks, Lizzie. Oh, Paul Heaton, big fan. Uh, David Bowater asked, do you think the abolition of the monarchy could lead to a codified constitution?
2: Yes, I mean, it doesn't have to, but it, it should, like, and it could. And I think the simplest thing to do, what we argue for is a, um, essentially what we have, but democratic, so a parliamentary democracy. And, it, and a codified constitution doesn't have to be overly complicated where we, um point and and nut and bolt in the system is written down it, it can simply set out the the main institutions of the state and how they relate to each other and what powers they are or what limits they are. and if you look at the irish constitution it's pretty straightforward it's one of the more modern ones um excepting from the um uh eastern europe and so on which have only written them in the last 30 years but the irish constitution is obviously only about um 70 years old uh and it's really just says, look, you know, you've got a parliament. This is how they're elected or appointed. You've got a head of state who's elected um, and they've all got these powers. Uh, it doesn't go a, a huge way uh, from that. Um, so it's fairly relatively straightforward. And I think having that written constitution also means that you, it's very clear. People can go and buy a copy, read it, see exactly where power lies and then if you want to change the constitution, it's very clear which line you change, what you can change it to, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the written constitution is part of the Republican um, proposal, including also obviously getting rid of the House of Lords and having an elected upper house.
1: I mean, you mentioned, obviously the Queen is, I think it's fair to say she's a popular figure. There's not really any dislike yeah. for Queen Elizabeth II, I don't think in any meaningful way in the country. I think people really know her. I mean, that's part of it. She There's a certain mystique yeah. in a sense Um, she's not seen to have, I mean, there are question marks actually, obviously the monarchy have intervened in democratic politics, but, uh, but she's seen widely to kind of be above politics, not really interfering. But the point about Prince Charles, which you've made is that's not true with him. And that's why he would be so much more divisive.
2: Yes. I mean, he, he is, I mean, we've done a um, a documentary, which is on our YouTube channel a couple of years ago now, which is called the man who shouldn't be king. And it, It goes through some quite extraordinary um, stories about his interventions in politics, but also his interventions in science. And there's the story of Ed Ernst, the leading expert on alternative medicines. And because he was a scientist, he was debunking quite a few of these alternative medicines. And Charles um, was not happy. Um, The bosses at Exeter University were lent on, um, or at least that's the claim. And Edsard Ernst's department was defunded. Mm -hmm. Uh, We went down to... Um, Cornwall and to the Isles of Scilly and talk to people there who are appalled by the way that the duchy operates and he he intervenes in two ways. Firstly he pushes his own agenda um, whether that's pushing alternative medicine, whether that is um, you know, on planning or education. I mean it's been said that a while back now when Alex Salmond was the first minister in Scotland that his government adopted prince charles's educational proposals from one of his educational charities um it's been said that you know the nhs spent money on a homeopathy for a lot longer than it uh, wanted to because of pressure from the royal family but as well as pushing his own agenda he also lobbies for his own interests and it's been said that he was partly behind the switch to the or well, the ditching of the civil list and the adoption of the sovereign grant which is hugely beneficial to them i mean david cameron himself the other day was quoted as saying that you know we, yes we were probably a bit generous to them when we did that you know it's, it's an incredibly generous and ridiculous uh, system uh, and again that's because they've been pushing for it so he is he is someone that not only does that behind closed doors but it makes his views very very clear in public and that's going to be a huge problem uh, in the future particularly if we know that he has a particular view on something and the government changes its view to align with his uh, there's obviously going to be questions as to, as to why that was
1: just a couple of final things let's hear i think one of the most eloquent um contributions in support of a uh, republic stacy solomon
3: but i
0: just don't get it i don't get any of it what I'm do you like, mean you don't as in, get what yeah. i
4: don't get why we're so obsessed with these humans that are exactly the same like it could be us for sitting there i just don't get it but are you talking about what you mean, as royals, or yeah. as like Kim Kardashian? Because for me, they're becoming celebrities. Well, to me, that, thats all they are. The is, Queen is, is their celebrity. Is
1: brilliant. I but love for the
4: Queen. For no, her duty, I... responsibility. She's always worked ahead.
0: really hard. But I would work hard if the whole country paid for me to have like twelve houses and work really hard. They're, they're... they
3: don't pay for all of the houses, but just but a few.
1: I love the way they were actually trying to patronize her there.
2: Uh it was, it was good. incredibly patronizing. Yeah. I mean Stacey Solomon's absolutely right on all this. And I think that, you know, they are very ordinary people, you know, they unremarkable people. And they don't show um much sign of being particularly engaged with the outside world being particularly inquisitive or anything like that. They're not particularly well educated. Um, nothing wrong with that. But I mean the point is we then put them up on the pedestal and pretend that they are incredible and amazing and the hard working thing is complete fiction as well. I mean, we've done the sums on that. There's a, I can't remember all the numbers, but I mean, they if you add up all the hours that they're supposedly doing, it adds up to about the equivalent of full-time, you know, two and a half months for the most busy one. Uh, maybe one and a half months, I think it was for Kate Middleton in 2019. So, you know, these are, not, these are not hardworking people. And they work, you know, someone said they don't work, they attend. You know, they turn up at things. Um, you no, know, smile and wave and go home again. Um, most of their engagements are at home, so you know they don't even have to travel anywhere.
1: But just finally, I mean, I think maybe do you think it's true that because we heard there quite it's quite refreshing that you don't normally hear in daytime television people, especially celebrities, making the case against the monarchy. Um, I think Stacey Solomon's brilliant, I think she did that very well in a very very human way as well. But I think, isn't it true the Republican movement just really punches below its weight in this country? I mean, why? What I mean, obviously. You know, that's your job. You're the head of the main Republican movement in this country. But it it doesn't seem to have much cut through. I mean, I know it's a hostile media environment, so it's not exactly easy. But just given there's particularly so many young people, the next generation, who have antipathy or simply just not interested at all in the monarchy, why isn't that message being able to be communicated in a far more effective way than it currently is?
2: Well, I think we, uh, I mean, Republic, I think, is uh, um, above its weight because we're not a, a huge organisation. One of the things I would say is that people that do support uh, getting rid of the monarchy need to speak up more. There's only so much that we can do um, as a, an organisation. We need to get a lot more people speaking up more regularly uh, and more convincingly taking it seriously. I mean, I think there has been in the past a, a, um, a view that this is something which isn't necessarily going to happen and therefore why... Uh, expend any energy on it and you were saying before you know there's bread and butter issues there's there's a lot of uh, serious issues coming up but this is a serious issue and it is also a bread and butter issue I mean the reason why governments can be um can act with impunity is because of the crown powers and the power they have over parliament so getting rid of the monarchy is actually a a serious political issue so and I think that with the falling of uh support with the succession coming with the collapse of support around the commonwealth we're going to see all of the caribbean countries move away from the, the monarchy australia and canada are now looking like they're going to move away as well i think this is the moment where we need to start saying okay this is this is gone, gone this is moved from a completely unlikely uh campaign uh, uh, you no know, success to a inevit- inevitable campaign success um, and i think that as the polling drops further the inevitability will look even more plausible and people used to say if you go back 20 odd years and people would say well you know we're, Gay marriage is not, isn't going to happen for 20-30 years. We're never going to get a black president. It's never going to be a woman in the White House. I mean, all these things have happened, um, and big change happens quite quickly. And we are now, I think, coming up to the the big turning point, um, which we're we're we'll already seeing in the polling. And I think that uh, the as we get towards the the end of the Queen's reign, we're going to see that polling shift even further, and then when we see King Charles on the throne, even further too. So it's yeah, I mean, we we are doing um, quite a lot, and we do get through more than a lot of organisations of our size do. But it does need a lot other, a lot more other people to amplify that, to project it, and to and to get involved. And I think that we will see a lot more voices uh, speak up on this issue in the coming months and years.
1: As the the one moment I think, though, which I think one thing I did enjoy just a little segue in the jubilee was that Bob Johnson, as we saw, got booed to the rafters, but. Yeah. Uh, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, who really the royals have kind of systematically <laughs> turned on, um, and so has much of the the monarchist press. The fact they were cheered by, again, a crowd which you might think would be the most sympathetic to the kind of anti-Meghan, anti-Harry bashing. I thought it was, it was interesting, whatever you think about, obviously, an elected head of well,
2: I, I, I think that it, it it, again, it shows that the press do not represent or reflect the opinion of the public. Most people, I think, are relatively sympathetic, uh, and and royalists are relatively sympathetic um, to them. Yeah. i not. I don't have a huge amounts of time, I mean, they, and certainly Harry still behaves like a, um, like a. You know, he's got this a sense of entitlement and so on. I mean, he's royal. That's the way they behave, but. I do think it's interesting. And the Megan thing and the Oprah interview and the accusations of racism are a big factor, in my mm-hmm. view, as, as to why the polling is dropping, along with Andrew, who still stands accused of criminal offences for which he's not investigated. I mean, some of those offences happened here in London or you know, allegedly happened here in London, I should say, um, and the, Me- the Metropolitan Police are not interested. So uh yeah there there are big scandals that have really distanced the royals from a lot of people and when you think about the zeitgeist the issues of the, the the age if you like the you know blm me too mental health you know awareness of slavery and colonialism the monarchy is on the wrong side of these and cannot respond to them and is looking pretty bad in relation to most of them and they don't know what to do and they can't turn it around and this is why people who are younger, I think particularly, are losing interest and in turning away.
1: Graham, it's been a big honour. Thank you so much for joining us and
2: eloquently you.
1: putting forward the case for an elected head of state in this time when obviously we're expected to be even more silent about this um, than in, even in normal circumstances. But um, yeah. I do think it's a cause which will come of age. I think yeah. we'll see, as you say, other Commonwealth countries are going to be are turning away from the monarchy I think it's yep. probably likely that Australia will be uh, a republic in the not-too-distant future. But, uh, but thanks so much for joining us. It's a yep. real pleasure. Thank you
2: for having me on, and I hope we get to uh, have you more involved in the future.
1: Definitely. All right. Take
3: care, buddy. Take cool. care, yourself. Okay. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.
0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Cheers. Bye-bye. Great stuff. Um, So, uh, if you're watching live, do click the Like button on Facebook. Uh, It's good for the algorithm. Leave comments. I do read through your comments as much as possible. Um, and you can support us by signing up on patreon.com forward slash owenjones 84 That's how we keep the show on the road and do all of this. Um, and the videos we're making, got lots of interviews and so on coming up as well as documentaries as ever. Um, and you can also support us on Super Chat as people are doing. Uh, and I will read out all your names at the end. Now, Amber Heard and the Johnny Depp trial, the libel trial. Now, what happened here was a few years ago, Amber Heard wrote a piece for the Washington Post in which she wrote, two years ago, I became a public figure representing domestic abuse. Now, it didn't actually mention Johnny Depp in the article, but his lawyer said it was about him, it was defamatory. And as a consequence, sued Amber Heard. Now, it was a jury um, libel trial, and they found in favour of Johnny Depp, um, I mean, we're talking 15 million dollars um i mean uh, it was also there was one ruling in favor of amber heard that one of the agents of johnny depp had defamed her now let's just have a quick look at a little bit of that verdict
4: all right mr foreperson is this the verdict of the jury yes,
1: sir. all right is it unanimous yes, sir. thank you sir in
4: civil case number CL20192911 Mr. Depp's claim against Ms. Heard 1 as to the statement appearing in the online op-ed entitled Amber Heard I spoke up against sexual violence and faced our culture's wrath that has to change in the Washington Post online edition quote I spoke up against sexual violence and faced our culture's wrath That has to change, end quote. Do you find that Mr. Depp has proven all the elements of defamation? Answer, yes.
1: Now, we've got the brilliant uh, writer, Lucia Osborne Crowley, whose tweets on this I have read all the way through the trial. Um, So it was just, you know, absolutely brilliant reporting of what was actually happening. I didn't watch the trial myself. Um so it was brilliant to be able to read uh somebody who watched it and went through all the evidence and is an all-round expert on the issue. So Lucia, it it's great to see you. How are you doing?
4: I'm very well, thank you for having me. And I must say there's absolutely nothing I would rather be doing to avoid celebrating the Queen's jubilee than talking to you. God
1: bless <laughs> so you. Exactly. Right, right back at you. Uh great to yeah, to share and not celebrating the jubilee together. So in terms of it let, let's just just, a, a, I guess, a quick kind of response. that Because in terms of, what you know, I found the coverage of this deeply disturbing, and not least on social media. And what people have said now, what a lot of people concluded, well, look, the jury was presented with the evidence. They had to sit through it all. And they found in favour of Johnny Depp, therefore he's absolved. And others, obviously the argument then is, actually Amber Heard is the abuser. What do you say to all of that? That's the that, that's the narrative now which has become so dominant. What do you say to that?
4: Well, I think this is really concerning because the problem with that narrative that we've seen in the media and, as you say, on social media in particular, is that it's lifted directly from the arguments made by Johnny Depp's lawyers. Um, and, and it doesn't actually comport with the evidence that the jury saw. So Johnny Depp's lawyers uh, strategically went into this case uh, so instead of making an argument that was basically, rather than looking at the evidence of abuse, because in a defamation trial, uh, in order for there to be defamation, the statement uh, that Amber Heard made about being a victim of de- of abuse has to be false. But instead of specifically engaging with that, Johnny Depp's team, right from the get go, decided to kind of reverse the narrative and say, actually, I'm the victim here, um, and you know, she she Amber Heard was abusive to me. Um, And, you know, that's his lawyer's prerogative, um, but it it was uh, kind of, uh, it was repeated in the media without much scrutiny. And I think that's a real problem because her legal arguments and what she presented at trial certainly wasn't recreated in the media in the same way that his was. And that created a very, very one-sided conversation, which actually distracted to my mind from the evidence and from the actual question for the jury which was was there ever a time in which Johnny Depp was abusive towards Amber Heard that even if there was legally strictly legally even if there was one instance of abuse um physical psychological sexual anywhere on the spectrum of abuse um then legally the jury shouldn't have found in favor of Johnny Depp on all three counts however Johnny Depp's lawyers did a really great job of replacing that question uh, with this kind of a separate question about, you know, who is to blame in this relationship, uh, which is, you know, it, that, that's, that's not a legal question. And it's certainly not the legal question that we have here. And what, what we have as the result of that is a jury verdict that if, you know, if you watch all the evidence that she presented is really hard to square with how much evidence she has that she was, in fact, a victim of abuse.
1: Can you explain to people how it's possible that Johnny Depp lost his libel case against the Sun newspaper when they called him a wife beater, Um, and we now have another libel case with a completely conflicting outcome?
4: So this is uh, something I really, really think we need to keep talking about because in all the coverage I saw um, of the US trial, there was scant discussion um, about the UK decision. And again, this is something that Johnny Depp's lawyers wanted from the beginning. Um, They wanted it not to be part of the conversation at all and largely succeeded. Uh, And that's a real problem because as you say, we now have two decisions, um, one from the UK High Court, uh, which has more precedent, more weight in terms of precedent than the District Court in Virginia, um, and we have two completely conflicting outcomes. Here in the UK, we had a long trial, uh, my colleagues at the news agency that I work for were there every day. Um, Johnny Depp gave evidence, Amber Heard gave evidence, We heard we heard evidence about exactly the same alleged instances of uh, abuse in that case um, it was a bench trial which means we have a judge making the decision rather than a jury which is more common here for libel cases Um, and that judge resoundingly said uh, that that, that this was not defamation because because it was true because Amber Heard had proven to him that uh, Johnny Depp had abused her 12 times so he said on 12 instances of physical abuse um, those facts had been made out now we have a jury decision that goes completely the other way and firstly i think the the main way to explain that is the judge versus jury question so here in the u.s trial we had uh, a a presentation of the evidence that was really geared towards a jury decision because it was about these kind of competing narratives and this idea that uh that Johnny Depp's lawyers were able to kind of reverse the victim and offender roles, um, and, and get the jury to feel a lot of sympathy for him. And if you read the UK judgment, there was a bit of that in the UK, but the judge said, here's some research about domestic violence perpetrators. Here's why I don't, you know, with all the evidence I've seen of Johnny Depp's misogynistic language, his physical abuse, his threats, here's why I don't believe what he's saying about being a victim and a, you know a, a judge has to have a really kind of structured opinion about those things whereas juries are very different you know they're unpredictable we have no idea what it was that swayed them on this decision and so you know i think having the bench trial versus the jury trial explains a lot of it um also uh, the trial took place in virginia neither johnny depp nor Amber Heard live in virginia or have ever lived in virginia The reason it was in Virginia, which um, Johnny Depp's lawyers have almost uh, admitted to in certain interviews, is that they have very different laws about defamation and it's easier to prove um, defamation uh, in Virginia. So the the thing here is, uh, you know, we're talking about what we're looking at is kind of a, a backlash against people speaking up about abuse, a backlash against Me Too, and we're looking at it take place in a legal arena. And there are a few things about this case that make that really worrying because to run essentially the same trial in two different jurisdictions is not something that is usually allowed. You know, I was really surprised when I read um, the statement of claim for this case because of how similar it is to the UK trial and the fact that it was allowed to go forward. That kind of signals to a lot of people around the world that if they have lots of money and a really good legal team, they can kind of keep shopping in different jurisdictions until they get the outcome that they want as well. And, and it's confusing, because we've got two completely conflicting decisions. Um, and I'm sure you've seen this online, you know, people will just completely, you know, I've spoken to so many people who completely disregard the UK decision, and have decided that the US decision is the only one that matters. But that's not how court judgment should work. You know, they are both relevant pieces of information about this
1: issue. Can you explain why, Just very clearly, uh, sorry, explain to us for people who maybe don't know about it or confused, why evidence from Johnny Depp's agents um, suggesting that he had apologised for physically, um, allegedly abusing Amber Heard, why that wasn't admissible? Why couldn't that be used as evidence? Um, And also why the jury, I forgot the legal term, it's where they're Basically, they're contained so they don't, um, they're not exposed to media coverage. Um, you'll know the term. Uh, because what happened is the jury obviously, this was an exceptionally high profile trial, and the coverage all over social media was very tilted in one direction. There's no question about that. And you know, I'd be, you know, did the jury then engage or see any of that? So, those two issues why wasn't that evidence? Why wasn't it admissible that those that alleged, you know, what Johnny Depp had allegedly said through agents? And why why weren't the jury prevented, as in other trials, from engaging with the media and so on?
4: So these are two of the most important questions, I think. And um, to be honest, I think these will be the two questions uh, that end up on appeal. So Amber Heard is appealing this verdict. Um, and these are the legal things that she's challenging. Um, And I think rightly so, I'm I'm very confused by some of the judicial decisions that were made in this case. Uh, So to take your first question, um, in terms of the evidence that the US jury didn't see, of which there was a lot. So in particular, there was contemporaneous medical records of Amber Heard reporting um, instances of abuse abuse to her therapist um, uh, at the time when it happened, dating back to, you know the early 2010s at the beginning of their relationship and then in particular um there's a text uh from johnny depp to uh his personal assistant at the time um sorry uh, uh, the other way around from from his personal assistant to johnny depp um saying that he had to tell johnny depp that in a in a kind of um drug-induced blackout the night before he had kicked amber heard and the text says he was devastated when I told him um, that he'd kicked you and he's very sorry. So this is important because a huge part of this trial, um, both in Amber Heard's testimony and in the expert testimony that we heard was about the fact that, um, Johnny Depp's substance abuse issues meant that he had several days at a time when he couldn't necessarily remember what had happened. So one of the things that Amber had said was, you know, it's, I'm not even necessarily saying that, that, he's getting up here and saying this never happened and he's deliberately lying I'm saying he doesn't remember and and I do um and this text is really important to that argument right because it's a contemporaneous piece of documentary evidence with someone uh close to Johnny Depp confirming that he didn't remember and also implicitly confirming that this act of, of physical violence happened and that Johnny Depp was was sorry about it so the jury didn't see that text And that's because um this judge took a very 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 strict approach to the rules um the hearsay rules of evidence um and i have to look into this a bit more because i've never come across this before i've i've all of my years covering courts i've never seen an approach this strict i think there are some things that were going on behind the scenes about disclosure of evidence when those texts were handed over um that perhaps the judge meant that uh, meant that the judge was unable to verify them in time for the trial i'm not sure about that Um, But, you know, it's very surprising. It's very, very surprising. And I think that those texts uh, really could have led to a different outcome as well as the medical records. Um, And the second question about the jury not being sequestered, uh, it it baffles me, honestly, um, because uh, sequestering a jury, as you say, is is when you basically uh, separate them from society for the duration of a trial. So you put them in a hotel, you make sure that they're not communicating with people outside of the jury um it does happen less and less but this this is the archetypal trial where you would expect the jury to be sequestered and that's because as we've seen on the outside this turned into a complete circus um in terms of the hashtag justice for Johnny Depp um gangs on the internet um and also part of Amber Heard's 100 million dollar counterclaim was an accusation that Johnny Depp had led a paid coordinated social media campaign against her, including these hashtags, for Johnny Depp, hashtag Amber Heard is the psychopath, those kinds of things. That he paid bots um, and fake accounts to kind of spread this information. So that's a very serious allegation. If you have an allegation that that kind of nefarious activity is going on uh, in, ter- in to try and sway the conversation online, it's much more important to sequester the jury. As well as that, you know. So the jury is instructed not to look at social media or do any outside research. You know, it still happens. Juries still do this. We know they still do this. I have no idea if this jury did, but it's possible. But even if they didn't, the thing that you know, I think this really epitomises what went wrong here. So there were TikTok videos making fun of Amber Heard's um, sexual assault allegations against Johnny Depp. She alleged that that um, he assaulted her with a vodka bottle. Um, And there were all these videos online mocking that allegation. But even if the jury didn't, you know, find those online, people turned up in real life in Virginia and acted them out for her while she walked into the courtroom because they knew that, you know, she probably wasn't looking online, but they really wanted to make sure that she saw it. And, you know, it's possible that the jury saw that as well. So, you know, I feel like this. Case, you know, we have to let go of the, this idea that the way, this case, the way cases are being talked about on social media doesn't spill over into the actual justice system. Because the fact that people took time out of their day to stand outside court and act out these vicious, nasty, you know, mocking videos of her just shows that, you know, this jury should 100% have been sequestered. And, it, you know, it, it, it's hard to see this verdict as not contaminated by what was happening on social media for this entire trial.
1: She'll also know, and I should apologise for the language here, but what Johnny Depp wrote in text messages about Amber Heard, I will fuck her burnt corpse afterwards to make sure she's dead. Mushy, pointless, dangling, overused, floppy fish market. Just lurid misogyny, really grotesque misogyny in an objective sense. Obviously, I don't think anyone rational could could listen to that and think it's anything other than extreme misogyny. I mean, in terms of the narrative, again, that's come out, and I just want to link this, I guess the final part, just to Me Too and, I suppose, the backlash against what, I suppose, was a period in which um, there was at least a, a consensus that well, not a consensus, but a, a broader acceptance that women should be believed if they speak out about male violence that they have endured, and on the basis that from every level of society, women, um, you know, often in a on a daily basis, have to suffer these experiences and get no redress, no accountability, nothing. And that there was finally a moment when that could change and so in terms of this narrative now there's people say well actually maybe they both abused each other and they'll say you know in terms of how amber heard, amber heard, amber heard behaved her, herself so just interested in that because obviously you know i mean this idea that someone in this context you know kind of has to, that perfection has to be obtained if if they're to be believed or accepted so just interested in that kind of the focus on a lot of Amber Heard's behavior and this idea—well, actually, maybe they both abused each other. That's obviously not what was reflected in in, in the in, in the narrative, though. Um, but how this how that then links to the backlash against the Me to movement?
4: Absolutely. So this, I think, is another one of the central questions that. Um, we really will need to pay attention to over the coming months and years, because this is going to keep coming up, especially with this you know, incredibly high profile precedent. And I think the thing that happened here is that uh, the public were really ready um, to kind of uh, take delight in the idea that an accuser has been shown to be lying and therefore that you know, Me Too has gone too far and you know, all of those arguments. Um, but again it, you know it's really hard to square that with the evidence that was presented in this trial because you know just to name a few things she had 11 witnesses who saw her with bruises she had a makeup artist who testified that she covered up bruises um she had a, a witness who saw Johnny Depp hit her firsthand you know this is the kind of evidence that most survivors of sexual assault and intimate partner violence do not have she actually had much more um documentary and firsthand witness, uh, evidence than most victims are able to have. And she's still uh, lost. So it tells us something uh, about this, what this backlash will demand of uh, victims who come forward publicly. And it's setting the bar much higher uh, than I ever would have expected personally, um, in terms of how much evidence a victim has to have in order to prove that this, that abuse happened. And secondly, as you say, you know, there's a substitution going on what this trial should have been about is can she substantiate the allegations that she made in the washington post unless those 11 people fly through the teeth and were all part of a huge coordinated hoax you know i think she did prove that at least one instance of abuse happened but Mm -hmm. but that question was substituted for the question of does she deserve does she you know does she deserve to be someone who is able to speak out about this kind of thing and that's where again johnny depp's team you know brought in all this evidence about her character and about other things that she's done hoping that the jury would focus more on that question this idea of does she deserve to be held up as a victim and that is a problem because firstly that's not a legal question that you know that shouldn't be a question in a in a court of law and secondly it goes to myths about domestic violence and sexual violence that I really thought we had overcome. And that is this idea that in order to be, in order to have the right to be a victim, um, you you have to be perfect in in other ways and you have to conduct yourself in, in ways that are beyond reproach. So, you know, we saw all this evidence about things that she's done. You know, I'm sure you've heard about this idea that she said that she would uh, donate all of her divorce um, settlement to charity and she hasn't done that yet. People really seized on that, right? And, you know, when you're looking at the law, that actually doesn't matter to whether or not she's a victim of abuse. And it was entered into evidence in order to try and get the jury to say, this is not a good enough person. So we're not gonna give her the right to speak publicly about this. And that's what the backlash is, I think. That's what we're gonna see is, is people trying to attack the credibility of victims outside of the evidence of abuse in order to tap into this idea in society that you know, victims have to be perfect or victims have to be kind of likeable um, in order to be able to, to speak out. And you know, that really worries me because again, that's, that's it's a myth, it's a myth about surviving abuse uh, that I really thought that we'd kind of gotten past. And this trial shows that we absolutely haven't and that so many people were just waiting to latch onto this argument that you know, she's an imperfect victim.
1: Just finally, the ramifications of this in terms of what it means for women, because if we look just at Britain alone, um, it's estimated that 1.4 million women um, are victims, survivors of domestic abuse every year. And obviously that's not going into sexual assault. I think it's about 400,000 sexual assaults against women a year and around eighty five to 90,000 women raped a year. Um. Now, obviously, I mean, it's been made. The argument's been made that if, you, if we were to talk about, and obviously, I'm separating this from from what from from, the gen, from this trial, but just in terms of, you know, what, what again, whatever people think about the verdicts, the coverage of it, and the conclusions being drawn from it, when it comes to women speaking out and being believed, where does this now leave that? Where does it leave it in a country where, I mean, people say rape is essentially decriminalised because the vast majority of men who commit rape there's there's no justice at at all um let alone sexual assaults or all forms of any form of sexual harassment so where does this leave us what's your concerns about again whatever anyone thinks about this particular trial what the ramifications will be going forward
4: yeah i mean i think the ramifications of this will be Huge and and even at this point hard hard to quantify. Uh, you know we like I I think it's hard to underestimate the impact that this will have. I've for example already spoken to a number of women who since the verdict came down last week have received notifications that their abusers are suing them for defamation. I've spoken to caseworkers who have clients calling them up now on de- on a daily basis saying uh, they're now being sued for defamation and asked to prove. Uh, to prove again their abuse uh in court so you know this is going to have a trickle down effect uh on survivors everywhere and i think um you know what you said about putting this in the context of rape being decriminalized certainly in this country and the evidence shows you know that this is happening in the us as well and you know i think what's important to remember is that uh that the the MeToo movement and speaking out about abuse was a response to the fact that the criminal justice system was completely failing to address it so um, we have fewer and fewer uh, prosecutions and convictions in terms of both domestic violence and sexual assault so the MeToo movement was saying okay you know we can't change the justice system hopefully eventually it will change we as individuals you know we can't change the fact that uh the justice system doesn't take these crimes seriously so if we speak publicly about it that that is one way uh to kind of achieve some sort of justice for ourselves what this kind of movement of, of strategically using defamation lawsuits to silence victims who choose to do that based on the fact that they don't have mountain evidence to prove it even though as i said i believe amber heard did um, you know that shows that not only will the criminal justice system not kind of acknowledge these crimes, but this is a way for the legal system to be used to shut down. You know, the other form of justice that the Me Too movement wanted, which was being able to speak freely about the things that have happened to us. So, you know, Marilyn Manson, for example, has filed um, a huge defamation suit against Evan Rachel Wood, and we have people online who have been using the Justice for Johnny Depp hashtag who've now moved over into the Justice for Marilyn Manson camp. So there's a group of people who've been mobilised into this movement that, that is about, you know, trying to shut down people who are speaking publicly about abuse. Um, and those people are now, you know, moving on to backing Marilyn Manson. Uh, and that should be really concerning to us because we had this kind of one section of society where, where women could speak about abuse and, it's we're now seeing that even that is no longer being tolerated and that the legal system is being used to shut that down as well and you know the more and more defamation suits we see like this the more concerning it will be and you know i think this has been coming for a long time this kind of backlash against people being able to tell their stories especially when you think about the fact that as you said at the beginning johnny Depp was not named in this article there were no specific allegations in this article uh it was very broad it was very um it was worded in a way that was intended to avoid exactly this outcome and yet you know this is what's happened so uh it's it it will have a chilling effect on people being able to speak publicly about abuse and and it already is and you know i think that's that really concerns me
1: you see that was Absolutely brilliant! So detailed and thorough, and really just went into the weeds. I think it's so important to talk about the potential consequences and, and, and what this means. And I think it's very important as well to have an alternative to the narrative that, obviously, now has become pretty dominant in the aftermath. But honestly, it's a it's a grim thing to have to talk about. But you did it uh, so wonderfully. So we're we're so lucky to have you all over again. And do follow, of course, Lucia Osborne Crowley on let me just make sure i get your your twitter handle right what is your twitter handle again i've got it, i've got it here somewhere
4: so it's l u c i a o c with an underscore at the end which is That's... because i have an embarrassing uh, teenage twitter from w- without the underscore that i can't figure out how to delete so
1: do you, do you know what, it's i i, I underscore there cuz i got owen jones 84 because there's a florida it guy who doesn't tweet who's got owen jones but it was funny, because at first, when I was only I was 84, everyone was like, oh, my God, he's showing off how young he is. It's like, I'm now 37. It's lost its, <laughs> lost its advantage. Now, <laughs> every year, it just becomes a kind of glaring reminder that actually I'm just getting older. So I didn't really think about that. In... Anyway, um, <laughs> we all learn. We pay the mistakes of our hubris. Um, but thank you so much as ever, honestly. Real, real honour. Brilliant stuff. And, um, and I look forward to speaking to you, too. Take care. Great stuff. Um, very eclectic show, but brilliant to talk about two very different, very important issues, of course. Um, thank you to everybody who obviously watched, all those who are listening on the podcast. Do do listen and download the podcast if you haven't already. Thanks to David Barwatter, Tad Campwell, Woody Woodpecker, and Attils Desics for your support on Super Chat. Do press hit like before you go. Stop now. Press like. It takes you a second on YouTube. And do subscribe to the videos as well. And support us on forward slash Owen Jones 84 uh, We've got lots of stuff coming up. And that's all down to you. So thanks for allowing this to continue um, on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, podcast, and Twitter. Um, so yeah, I will see you all next week. Hopefully it won't be... I mean, given I've only had about four hours sleep, I think I more or less got through this unscathed. But the two guests carried it, let's be honest. Great. Lots of love, everyone. Enjoy whatever you're doing today. I will see you soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, interesting, interesting and I certainly did. Do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road, uh, forward slash Orange Jones 84 Leave us some stars, that'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands.